Welcome back to Lesson 31. Here we are in uh, Mark 3. Kind of hard to believe that, you know, all of the Gospel of Matthew, 28 lessons. We painted a picture of Jesus as King. And the fun part is what we're going to be plowing through this week is we're going to paint a picture of Jesus and how he serves. Literally just, not just as a king, but as a servant. And what you're going to see unfold throughout Mark 3, it's kind of fun for me to think about, is how Jesus is, is not afraid to interact with the people. In fact, for the first six verses, what you see is Jesus interacting in a synagogue and he finds a guy with a paralyzed hand and he begins to see, it's kind of a cool picture of this healing hand, he sees a, a paralyzed hand be restored. And as a result, as it continues on in, in verse 7 and on, you're going to start seeing Jesus, as he continues to do ministry, people are following him everywhere. There's a great multitude. There's a great uh, crowd from Galilee and Judea and, and really everywhere else. And they're going to keep following him all because Jesus is amidst the people. Scripture continues on in verses 13 through 19, just as, as a picture of where we're going to go today. He then begins to appoint and calls out these 12 disciples. In fact, in verse 14, it says he appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with them. And what were they going to do? He's going to send them out to preach. It continues on in verse 15. And to have authority to drive out demons. It's kind of a weird uh, paraphrase of what their role is. Their role is, is to preach the gospel and drive out demons. Can you imagine if people are coming to church today and say, Hey guys, we gotta, we gotta, we're going to go out and share the gospel today and drive out demons. I mean, let's just call it out as it is. Half of the conservative churches in America would be like, no thanks. Like, that's not possible. No, no, I'll, I'll stick to the gospel. But look, if we're supposed to model who Christ is and a model how God used the disciples, I would just say, you know, it's okay to have this mindset that we have the authority to drive out demons. Now, think about this. If Satan is real, which I would say everybody that's listening, hopefully you would say Satan is real. Satan is the reason uh, because of the fall. I mean, think about this. He wanted to be like God. He, he wanted the glory, but he didn't want, as many people say, he, he didn't want to have to go through the suffering. He didn't want to have to go through the persecution. He didn't want to have to go through the process. He just wanted the glory. And as a result, he fell and so did a third of the angels. And there we have demons. I hate to tell you, but the demons are still alive and active. And so we need to understand as we preach the gospel, we have authority to drive out demons as well. That's what the disciples were doing. And as this begins to really unfold... Uh, think about this. They're cast, they're, they're sharing the gospel and casting out demons. That is the backdrop of going into verse 20. That's the backdrop of this tension of the good and the bad, of God and Satan, of angels and demons. And here's the crazy thing is, as believers of Jesus, we have that same power. We have that same authority to do that work, right? In fact, Kevin, can you go to Matthew 10, 8? Matthew 10, 8. I mean, it's pretty clear what his role is, is that they're supposed to go out into the lost sheep, find the lost sheep of Israel. And here's what he's asking them to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases and drive out demons. And oh, by the way, as you've received free of charge, you better give free of charge. In other words, we're supposed to go do these things. That's what the disciples were being asked to do. So to transition into Mark, as we're getting into the story, he sends them out, preach the gospel and drive out demons. It wasn't like you pick which one you like. It was, I want you to do both. And so there's this weird tension of his own followers beginning to do work, right? That makes the religious uncomfortable. Now, as they're doing this, it's kind of crazy. Like, it doesn't stop. Ministry just doesn't stop. You know, it's not like once you cast out one demon, all the demons are, are cast out of people. I mean, there's a lot of demons in Texas. 
There's a lot of demons in Indiana. There's a lot of demons in Liberia. There's a lot of demons in, you know, you name the country, you name the state. Satan is really trying as the prince of the air, the God of this age, right? He's doing everything he can to bring us down. And so there's this ongoing battle. In fact, Kevin, if you go to Ephesians 6, it says in verse 12, for our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You know what this means to me? It means there's a ridiculous battle going over every one of us. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against actually the religious or our families. It's against the rulers, the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness. And we have the opportunity and the power and the authority by the Spirit of God working inside of us to set these people free. And so this is where it, it, this is where the tension comes in. In Mark, it says in Mark 3, verse 20, it says, then he went home. And so what happens was, is that Jesus is going to begin to face opposition. He's doing things that are not normal. So number one is, is that we're going to call this, as, as Tom Constable says, an opposition sandwich. Okay, you're going to see the bun <laughs> representing the same thing. And then you're going to see the meat representing something else. Now that top, let's just say the bottom bun, whatever you want to say. The first one is that Jesus receives opposition from his family. Opposition of family. Now remember, he's sending him out to preach the gospel, casting out demons. The opposition of family is found in verses 20 through 21. And it says this, then he went home. Remember, he's going to Capernaum. Okay, he's going to Capernaum and the crowd gathered again. So that they were not even able to eat. Kevin, who's they? Uh, Jesus and the disciples. Yeah, Jesus and his disciples weren't even able to eat. Why? They weren't able, even able to eat because ministry was so much. The crowd was constantly pressing in, constantly wanting to know more. And I, I actually believe it's because people were hearing the good news and people were being set free. This is something totally different. And yet the family, watch this, it says in verse 21, when they heard about this, when they heard about all that's taking place, Scripture says they set out to restrain him. Oh, that little Jesus, he's getting out of control. Let's go find him. I mean, this is the mentality. They need to, Scripture talks about this word restraint. Okay, it can mean a couple things. One is to take custody and take charge. Hey, we're going to go, okay, you get his left arm, I'll get his right arm. Like, let's get him. Like, even to the point of this restraining means, like, they're going to arrest him and put him in like restraints. I mean, that sounds obvious, but this is what they wanted to do. Why? Because they were concerned about like how he's starting to live his life. And in fact, they went so far that they even said about their own family member, their own son, their own brother, he's out of his mind. He's not even making time to eat. They're actually, I think, this opposition of the family, it's actually out of, out of love. Uh, and ignorance. <laughs> I think that's a, it's a both end. We care for him. We care for his physical exhaustion. He's not eating. We've got to make sure Jesus is actually eating. He's not sleeping. Let's make sure he's taking a nap. Oh man, I'm concerned about his mental state. What about his, his spiritual state? So his whole family is on a journey traveling 30 plus miles from Nazareth and they're going to come and restrain Jesus because he's lost his mind. Well, I think if you've been labeled as one who's lost your mind, you're actually, you're actually in good company. Kevin, if you would, would you go to Acts 26, verse 24? Here you go. You ready? This should encourage you. As he was making this, his defense this way, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, you're out of your mind, Paul. 
Too much study is driving you mad. (laughs) Somebody from Wisconsin I know is saying amen. Somebody from Flint is like, that's totally me. I mean, the reality is, is that if scripture, Paul was being accused of reading and studying too much, he's become crazy. You're out of your mind, Paul. You're taking these truths and it's, it's impacting your life on what you say and what you do and how you cast out demons, how you're healing people. This is causing you to be mad. Jesus was called out of his mind. Paul was being called out of his mind. In fact, Paul then even writes about this even more so. Kevin, can you go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13 talks about same mentality. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. <laughs> In other words, if you're labeled a fool, if you're losing this, this perception from people of like, oh, this guy seems to be normal. <laughs> There's a good chance it's for God. If we have a sound mind, it is for you. And I just think so many of us play the the safe card. Because what's our family going to think? What's our family going to think if I leave this job that I've done for 15 years? And regardless of what it is, let's just say you work at a a restaurant for 15 years and God is calling you to pursue full-time ministry. And I just want you to understand, I understand you can do ministry right in that, in that restaurant business. So I'm not, I'm not even saying that. But maybe God's calling you something radically different. It'd be like, Kevin, you know, the Lord calling you to, to leaving North Dakota uh, and doing, what, I mean, what were you doing for a living? Uh, sold GPS equipment. Sold GPS, and, and you came to Dallas, and now you work for Time Revive. Did anybody think you were a little weird? Oh, yeah. Tom? Customers, definitely. Customers thought you were weird? How, how, Taylor, you... Oh, I thought he was weird, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Taylor. Tom, what about you? I mean, you were with the National Guard recruiter. How did that go for your family? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, my dad called me every day for a week after uh, I told him I was resigning the Guard to come and do this to try to change my mind. Every day? Every day for a week. Thought you are out of your mind. You know, I think, think about this, you guys. We studied the Pentateuch for how many months? All they knew was the law. All they knew is how to do it as a ritual, present something, this is done, this is taken before the Lord, you kill something, you present something, you ask for forgiveness, like it's just this process. Now all of a sudden, Jesus is just wheeling and dealing out in the freedom, out, out, in, the, out in the interaction with people, and he's just setting people free just like that. They're not coming to the temple, they're not coming to a synagogue. Jesus is actually seeing uh, the demonic, seeing, you know, being set free from people. When we realize, Jesus, you're doing this, large crowds are following. We're kind of concerned about what you're saying, even. Jesus began to experience what I would consider this this opposition from his family. Uh, And then, Kevin, if you would, if you go to verse 22, I want to walk through the the meat section of the sandwich. Okay, we got the bun, we got the opposition of family. You can also expect, and this is kind of the obvious, an opposition of of the enemies, as Dr. Tom Constable says. And it's a longer duration, but you're going to see it in verses 22 through 30. So you have the opposition of family, and then you have the opposition of enemies. Enemies, And here's what I love about this one. You know, they're going to go straight for the jugular. They're, like when they have opposition with Jesus, they're not going to be like, oh, I don't really like the, the robe tassels that you have. No, man, they call them out and they say this. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, remember, they're coming into Capernaum, and they say this about Jesus. He has a Beelzebul in him. And oh, by the way, Jesus, he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. (laughs) So not only do they not just, they don't even make fun of his family. They just call him of Satan. They say, oh, by the way, you have Satan in you. I'd I'd rather you make fun of my family name. I'd rather you make fun of my house. But you're saying that me, as in Jesus is saying, I have 
I have Beelzebul. Now Beelzebul, okay, there's multiple pagan gods, okay, uh, in that time. Nelson's uh, kind of gave me eight different pagan gods, Nelson's commentary in the New Testament. Beelzebul is a heathen god considered by the Jewish people at that time to be, to be the supreme evil spirit. So like if we're going to call something out, in Jesus, we're going to go for the jugular. We're going to say this is the big one. He has the ultimate supreme evil spirit. Now, a couple of other evil spirits that you might read throughout in the New Testament, just as a backdrop, is Diana. Diana would be the goddess of uh, hunting or the goddess of wild animals and the virginity. Like, that would be Diana. Then you would have Hermes, uh, uh, who would be the Greek god of commerce, science, uh, invention, and cunning, uh, eloquence, and theft. And so... People put their focus on these different gods, but Beelzebul is the top one. Okay, Hermes, okay, as we just went over. Then you have Mammon. He's the Aramaic word for riches. And really, this is a false god, as, as many people perceived, obviously, but had to do with wealth. Then you have Moloch. We talked about this even in the Old Testament. Moloch was the national guard, the god of the Ammonites, whose worship always involved child sacrifice. And then you have Remphan, an idol worshipped by Israel during the time of the wilderness. Then you have the twin brothers, the Greek mythology, the twin sons of Zeus. And then you have Zeus himself, who is the supreme god of ancient Greeks. All of these, I, I felt like I wanted to list these because these are different false gods, even in the New Testament that people worshipped. And so when they see Jesus, they equated him being a part of one of these false gods. And so, oh, surely he has, surely he, he has the the evil spirit in him. And I, I love this. And they say this, he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. It's, it's probably one of the most ridiculous arguments against your own enemy. Oh, by the way, you drive out demons because you're the ruler of demons. Why would a demon want to get rid of his own people? Why would a demon want to get rid of his own kind? It's the dumbest argument. And the scribes think they're, they're outwitting him. And I love what Jesus says in verse 23. So he summoned the religious. He summoned the scribes. He says, okay, let's have a dialogue. If this is the game we want to play, let me counter this and ask you questions, right? Isn't that how always Jesus interacts with people? Not always, but it sure seems like they ask a question. He asks a question back. And so he says, how can, how can Satan drive out Satan? Hey, did you guys hear about the Dallas Cowboys game? Yeah, what happened? Oh, the Cowboys beat the Cowboys. What? No, they didn't. The Cowboys played the Steelers. Yeah, that's my point. The Cowboys didn't beat the Cowboys. They played another team. But that's what they're saying. They're saying they're fighting themselves. And that's how it's working. Jesus is like, how can... you like how I equated the Cowboys to Satan. Didn't mean to do that on purpose. <laughs> totally didn't mean to do that. How can Satan drive out Satan? So Jesus asks one question. But then he begins to make a point even more so with this. It's like on constant, like, I'm going to go at him right now. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Satan can't fight against Satan. A kingdom cannot be divided against itself. And it's almost like, it's, it's almost like if you didn't get those two points, let's go to verse 26. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. So there's this constant division it, within itself, if there's division within itself, it's obviously not going to stand. So why would Satan want to destroy himself? In verse 26, if Satan rebels against himself <laughs> and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's, it's finished. 
You guys, do you not even know the word yourself? And in fact, in verse 27, Jesus kind of puts it on a positive spin. He says, on the other hand, no one can enter a strong man's house and rob his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. So think about this. You break into somebody's house. If you're going to break into somebody's house and there's a strong man that's there, what do you have to do first in order to get his possessions? You have to bind up the strong man. You don't go in and be like, hey, what's up, strong man? Hey, we're on the same team. Let's do this. No, he's going to... like this, this makes no sense unless you understand that the strong man is Satan. And you're coming in, you're going to tie him up. You have to bind up Satan first in order, what? To set the people free. In order to remove those things that do not belong to him. So let's go to this. Let's just back it up with scripture. 1 John 3, 8, okay? The role of Jesus, the role of the Son of Man, Son of God, okay, is to always go after the devil, I mean, yeah, he's here to love us, but I think that's one of the things is that 1 John 3, 8, it just says this. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God was revealed. Look, what was his purpose? For this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Strong man is in his house. Picture this, okay? He's got all kinds of possessions. In order to actually set people free from those things, you've got to bind up Satan in order for people to experience freedom. This is what Jesus is the son of God's purpose is, to destroy the devil's work. So it would be weird if the devil was fighting the devil. It makes actually no logical sense. And that's really what Jesus is saying. And so he says in verse 28, I assure you, Okay, this is an interesting. Now, remember, this argument about even in, in communicating in parables falls under the opposition of enemies. So he says this, I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins. All to me means all. I assure you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies. Okay, this word is killing me that they may blaspheme. Okay, so in other words, I really believe forgiveness is for all people. But watch what he does in verse 29. He says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because it says in verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He obviously is making this accusation, accusation with what they just did to him. Right? Wouldn't you say? So the religious, the scribes are saying very clearly to Jesus, you have an unclean spirit. He just called them out. He just said, oh, by the way, what you just did, apparently to me is what I'm hearing, is that you've just done the eternal sin. You have just said, I have an unclean. Jesus has an unclean spirit. He's rejected. They're rejecting who Christ is. You see the parallel here? Kevin, you're struggling, your head, you're processing. Well, I, th I think they're, it's not necessarily who Jesus is, but the spirit that's within him. So they're thinking somebody else, they're thinking that he's doing it because Satan's controlling him. Totally. They're thinking Satan is controlling Jesus. So they're calling out who Jesus is. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 the Holy Spirit is, is in me, is on me. And you're saying that spirit is unclean. That's an unforgivable sin. So that word blasphemy, Taylor, I think you're, you're our, our word buff today. How would you define this word today? Defiant irreverence. What the heck does that mean, do you think? Going against it, like all, I think you have to know what you're doing. It can't be like yes. ignorantly doing this, but you're, you're full on going, trying to do this with all of your efforts. You're willfully choosing, it's this opposition of the enemies. They're willfully choosing to say, Jesus, you are not of God. I think that's what you're saying. They're defiantly 
uh, what, did, what was it word? Defiant irreverence. Irreverence. You're choosing specifically to go against about showing reverence to you. And that's really what they're doing. And in fact, uh, a couple other definitions of this is that of blasphemy. It's a type of sin, pretty much predominantly in speech, that is hostile, malicious, injurious, and derogatory of God. That's very clearly what people are doing. The enemies are saying, you are not of God. Yeah, Taylor. But that's different than taking the Lord's name in vain, right? Correct. I would, I would say so. This is to the Spirit, but that would be like taking Jesus' name in vain. Correct. You're just talking about like a curse word, <laughs> you know, saying something flippantly. This, I think, is you're going after the core being of questioning who Christ is and the Holy Spirit in his life. I would say so. It's a good question. Good, good clarification. I think to go to your point even more so, the enemies have this mentality. And I think this is, you know, you have to ask yourself, have I ever done this? Have I ever blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Here's where I would go with Tom Tom Constable says, when you choose preference for darkness, even though you've been exposed to the light and you choose to go willfully go against who Christ is and the Holy Spirit working in Christ, then I believe that's when blasphemy takes place. You know, as the commentator Tom Constable continues, he says, such persistent attitude of willful unbelief. Okay, so in other words, you're intentionally about saying, I don't want to receive Christ. I don't want to recognize the Holy Spirit at work. When you have a willful unbelief that it can harden into a condition in which repentance and forgiveness, watch this, both mediated by God's Spirit becomes impossible. Let me give you some scripture to talk about this. Kevin, can you go to Hebrews 10, verse 29? I understand this is a hard concept because you're saying, wait, 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 wait. Is this really true? Can you really speak against the Holy Spirit? Now watch. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? You know, I, I love what Pastor Gordy Hinky says. He says, I, I, I didn't write it. I just read it. I love this. We're, we're just reading what the scripture says. And all I know is I would not try to trample on the Son of God or insult the Spirit of grace. I wouldn't try to insult the Holy Spirit. Uh, according to this scripture, if you do, you're playing games. And I would just consider it roulette with your life. Let's go to one more text. Kevin, can you go to Matthew 12? Matthew 12, verse, I think, 31 and 32 or 32, 31. And scripture says this, because of this, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Now watch, for how long? How long does this, this truth apply for, right? Because some people could say, oh, that was back for then when Jesus was talking to the religious. In verse 32, it says, whoever speaks a word against the son of man, okay, to me, uh, it says it will be forgiven him. Okay, praise the Lord. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Man, I, I think this is pretty radical. But if you recognize Jesus, okay, you can even speak a, a word against Jesus, according to this passage. But just don't speak about the Spirit of God working in him. Kevin, does that make sense to you? Yeah, that makes So here's what you have. You have one group accusing Jesus of having the Beelzebel inside of him, the spirit that's really Satan, or you have to recognize that it's the spirit of God that came from the Father to say, this is my my son. I mean, think about the baptism in Mark uh, Mark 1. Kevin, if you'd go there, 
In Mark 1, verse 10, right? Remember, he's being baptized by John the Baptist. And it says in verse 10, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw, right? What does it say? That he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending to him like a dove. So you either recognize that the spirit of God has come on Jesus or you recognize that in this context, the opposition says you're of the enemy. You have to choose one way or the other. Has God placed uh, literally his spirit on this man, Jesus, or not? And if you're saying no way, you're saying no way, like in the sense of like, this isn't the son of God. Scripture says, man, <laughs> I wouldn't play that game. And this whole blasphemy, it gets into this tension of like, I just wouldn't willfully go after this argument. So you have the opposition coming from the family. Hey, Jesus, I, I think you need to relax, get some rest, put your head down, make sure you're eating some food. And then as that opposition is coming, they're on their way, actually. Then you've got another opposition that's coming, that's taking place in Capernaum. It's the enemies, it's the scribes, it's the teachers, it's the religious. And they're saying, whoa, we don't like this guy. Even though he's doing all of this ministry, we recognize that he's doing work of the devil. Again, another silly, dumb argument because the devil doesn't cast out the devil. The devil doesn't cast out demons. You cannot do that or the, uh, the kingdom is divided and it will fall. And we know eventually because of what Christ has done, it, it does fall. And I'll think about this though in our, in our sandwich. Remember, we're, we're having a sandwich here, right? We've got our, bun, our buns and we've got our meat. The third, the third component of this is that Jesus receives the opposition of his family now that they've actually arrived. Think about this in verses 31 through 35. So remember, they were on their way and they're talking about all the things that they're going to do. So when they show up in verse 31, it says, then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside. And I love this. They couldn't even get in. They sent word to Jesus and they called him. In verse 32, a crowd was sitting around Jesus as always. Isn't this seem normal? Crowds everywhere. And they told him, look, your mother, your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. Like, hey, they, they've come a long ways. Why don't you have them come on in? Why don't you have them sit down? And Jesus already knows their motivation. He already knows why they're there. They want to restrain him, remember? They want to put him in a way that says, stop doing ministry. Just relax, take a nap, eat some good food. And he says, no, 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 no. Verse 33 says, who are my mother and my brothers? He begins to talk out loud. And he says in verse 34, and looking about those who were sitting in a circle around him. I don't think he was trying to diss Mary. I don't think he was trying to diss, the, you know, the Judes and the James, the, the brothers. I think he was just trying to paint a picture of like, look, my family has good intentions, but here are my mother and my brothers. And he defines who they are. He says in verse 35, whoever. So he defines his family as the whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Whoever doesn't try to prevent me from doing the will of God, whoever doesn't try to prevent me from casting out demons and preaching the gospel, whoever wants to, to not do those things and prevent me from doing those things, that's my family. It's pretty harsh. But you got to go back to the, the times the family was trying to get Jesus to, to stop doing these things. The enemies, they were trying to say, whoa, that's not of the Lord. And he pretty much just simply just says this, look, you should always expect opposition as you do ministry. In fact, if you're not experiencing opposition, can I just say this? You're probably not doing ministry. If you are preaching the gospel, right? And, scripture says, and, <laughs> casting out demons. Can I just tell you? This is what you should expect. Opposition. 
You're like, well, hey, I don't experience opposition. My question is, is are you doing those things? Are you preaching the gospel and are you casting out demons? Because when this happens, you will begin to rub people the wrong way. But as the Spirit of God leads each one of us, now watch, in Romans 8, 14, it says, those that are led by the Spirit of God are called sons of God. As we are led into sharing the gospel and casting out demons, you are part of God's family. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. He's modeling how we can live our lives just like Him. It it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It just means that's what we're supposed to do. All right, guys, that's uh, a Gospels Lesson 31, Mark 3, and we'll talk to you tomorrow for Mark 4. Thanks. Thanks.